Welcome to Big Sky Christian Fellowship. It's so nice to have you all with us this afternoon. About a year ago, if you guys can remember back then, when we weren't allowed to leave our homes, I remember watching a really fascinating special on PBS about the Spanish flu pandemic from the early 1900s. And uh, I was struck with how what we were going through at the time was so similar to something that we had already experienced in our country's history. Here's just a few quick comparisons between the coronavirus pandemic and uh, the Spanish flu in 1914. Both were a novel virus that no scientists had ever encountered before. Both were transmitted in the same way from aerial droplets. Governments around the world forced quarantines and forced their citizens to wear masks. Both had a fatality rate in the U.S. Among those, were, among those who were infected around 2%. Both lasted about two years. And uh, most of the deaths actually came from overcrowded hospitals. One kind of funny moment from the documentary comes through interview footage. We're back in 1914 during this pandemic. They didn't understand a lot about medicine. They still believed in a lot of kind of like folk medicine. And people felt they were successfully warding off infection by wearing an onion around their neck. And if you think about it, isn't that like the 1914 way to create social distancing? <laughs> to wear a rotting onion around your neck? So as I sat in my living room and began to grasp that our world was going through something scary, but also remarkably similar to something it had experienced before. I realized we were going through something that our grandparents and our great-grandparents had endured. Well, now it's, the, it's June of 2021, and the worst is behind us. That should give us some smiles and some joy. And we find ourselves in the process of rebuilding our lives after a year of isolation, relocation, economic loss, and perhaps even the death of loved ones. So we find ourselves asking the questions like, what are we going to do with our regained freedom? What are we going to do with the resumption of life as we used to know it before? What are the lessons that we can learn from this last year? Well, the Old Testament tells the story of a 70-year catastrophe that occurs in Israel. And in the same way that PBS special reminded me that there's really nothing unprecedented, there's really nothing that we haven't gone through before, we see that we're going through something very similar to a story that occurs many times throughout the Old Testament. So it's called the exile, and uh, the Old Testament tells this story of what had occurred in Israel. It wasn't a flu-like pandemic, but the country had been destroyed. Uh, those who survived experienced isolation and relocation and economic loss, much like we have in this last year. And so the Old Testament books of Ezra and Nehemiah they tell this combined story of how three men, three reformers, rebuilt their faith community. So this afternoon, we're going to start to, to wrap up with the second to last week of uh, our, our sermon series on Ezra and Nehemiah. We're going to focus in on this man named Ezra. And we're going to learn some uh, lessons from the life of Ezra on how to reconnect to God and rebuild our faith community. And I think everybody that's here this afternoon can relate to one of those two 
thoughts, and maybe both. You're almost assuredly in a stage right now where you are trying to reconnect with God after a hard year and rebuild our faith community, either here at Big Sky Christian Fellowship or the other church that you might call home. So we're going to do this by learning from the life of Ezra by three, way, three lessons that he did right and two lessons that he got wrong. Ezra and Nehemiah are a very confusing story to read through if you assume that we're supposed to duplicate everything that they did. Uh, so let's begin. Uh, I hope you got a bulletin when you walked in. In section one, we're just going to have a brief reintroduction to the story so everybody's familiar with the characters and the events that we're talking about. In section two, we're going to talk about three things that Ezra demonstrated that are good lessons as we try to reconnect with God and rebuild our faith community. And then we're going to end in section three with two things that, that Nehemiah got really wrong that we probably still get wrong sometimes today. So let's jump right into section one and a reintroduction to this story. For those of you that have been coming the last couple weeks, I'm going to try to make this really quick because you're probably pretty on board with what's going on right now. But we do have some new people that have stopped in, and I don't want them to uh, have to nod their head and pretend like they know what's going on. All right. All right, so there's this guy, Ezra, who comes into the story now, and uh, he's this prominent figure. He's a scribe. He's a human copy machine. You know, we can go down uh, uh, to uh, uh, the post office or any number of offices where we can just have documents duplicated. But Ezra's a scribe, so he is writing out the books of the Old Testament that exist at this time in the story by hand. And as you do that, you get really familiar uh, with everything that's in it. So Ezra's determined to bring revival to Jerusalem, and he's going to do that by reintroducing people to what God has already taught. It tells us in Ezra 7.10, Ezra had devoted himself to the study and the observance of the law of the Lord and to teaching its decrees and its laws in Israel. So what we have to understand about Ezra is he's going to bring reform. He's going to bring prosperity. He is going to, for lack of a better phrase, make Israel great again. And he's going to do it by reminding them what the law, the first couple books of the Bible, had taught. If you guys just do a really quick survey of some slogans, some presidential slogans, a lot of people have gotten elected in this country by promising prosperity. In 1860, Lincoln ran under the slogan, Vote Yourself a Farm and a Horse. In 1904, Teddy Roosevelt got elected under the slogan, A Vote to Assure Continued Prosperity. And my favorite is in 1928, Hoover got elected under the slogan, A Chicken in Every Pot and a Car in Every Garage. Right? In other words... I've got what it takes to make you prosperous again. And that's really the vein of what Ezra is doing. But his strategy is, I'm going to make you great again by reconnecting you to the law. Because, because obeying what God has called us to do has always been what's made Israel special. And when we failed to do that, we got driven out of the promised land. Now we're coming back. Imagine him with a red hat that says, MIGA, make Israel great again. And he's going to do it by reconnecting them to the law. There's also something really strange about Ezra, though. He's a little bit of a double agent. Because uh, in Ezra, well, so first of all, it tells us in Ezra 7, 15 to 20, that he is, he is sent by the king of Persia. Persia is now in charge of all these different regions. And they kind of keep control by letting all the individual countries 
maintain their own culture as long as they have like a political loyalty to Persia. So the king of Persia is sending Ezra back into Israel with this idea of rebuilding it into a great and prosperous country so that they'll just be stronger as they're loyal to Persia. But what it shows us in Ezra 6.21 is that Ezra is taking the authority and the money of the king of Persia but he's going to use it to just break Israel off from any influence that they have. In uh, Ezra 6.21 it says, So the Israelites who had returned from the exile uh, ate together with all who had separated themselves from the filth of their Gentile neighbors in order to seek the Lord, the God of Israel. And that's probably in Ezra's own words. So he's empowered by the king of Persia to rebuild the country. But all along, he just can't wait to break from any influence and connection that Israel had at the time with Persia. Imagine if, uh, imagine if Big Sky hired somebody to be in charge of our tourism, and we paid that guy a million or that lady a million dollars to be in charge of our tourism, and they started making billboards that said things like, "It's it's not that great here. Don't come," right? Because they didn't want anyone to come and. Uh, crowd up our trails in our town. It, it would be a conflict of interest, right? Like, that's my point. It would be a huge conflict of interest. And that's exactly what Ezra's all about. He's sent by the king of Persia to make Jerusalem, to rebuild Jerusalem. But his plan the whole time is to just break any influence that these non-Jewish nations have over Israel. Uh, the final thing that I want to say as we kind of jump back into this story is about a third of the Old Testament deals with this story from different perspectives. Did you guys know when I was a kid, how many Star Wars movies do you think there were? There were three Star Wars movies and they all happened chronologically with the same characters. Do you know how many Star Wars movies there are now? Twelve. Do you know how many TV shows there are about Star Wars? 19. And the funny thing is, as they started to make new movies with new characters, the original fans weren't really that interested. So the majority of these 12 movies and the majority of these 19 TV shows all overlap with the same characters and the same events, just told from slightly different perspectives. And they call that the Star Wars Expanded Universe. And it takes all the money out of our pocket, right? Well, Star Wars wasn't the first place to get that idea because the Old Testament is very much an expanded universe. And so the stories that we're reading here in Ezra and Nehemiah are the exact same events that are being talked about in Ezekiel, in Isaiah, in Hosea, in Hosea and all these other, not all, but, but the majority of the books of the Old Testament. And I bring that up because as we read through some of these other stories, we get some really interesting background on why Ezra and Nehemiah's mission was so important to them. For example, in Ezekiel 40 to 48, it talks about how when Jerusalem was going to be rebuilt, there was going to be massive healing and prosperity. In Isaiah 2, it says when the temple is rebuilt in Jerusalem, there's going to be an era of political peace. In Isaiah 11, it says shortly or sometime thereafter that Jerusalem is rebuilt, the promised Messiah is going to come. 
In Hosea 3, it says, when Jerusalem is rebuilt, there's going to be this great period of spiritual faithfulness. In other words, Ezra and Nehemiah are trying to accomplish, when they're trying to rebuild Jerusalem, they're, they're really trying to accomplish all these things that have been promised. And they believe they're all going to coincide at the same time. So that's a little bit of a background of what uh, Ezra is trying to accomplish. And I hope that you guys can feel a personal connection as well. Like I said in the introduction, if you are trying to reconnect with God after a difficult year, if you would like your relationship with God to just be a little bit more personal, a little bit more dynamic, and if you have a passion for this church or your home church, if that's somewhere else, to just rebuild after a difficult year, Ezra and Nehemiah offer us the Bible's greatest parallel stories of how we can start to act that out. So let's move on and let's talk about the three things that Ezra did really well. Three things that Ezra did that can inspire us as we try to reconnect with God as well. The first one is this. Ezra models helpful ways for the people to reconnect with God. In uh, Ezra 8.21, he enacts a fast. A fast uh, is just a way to give up something, in this case, food, for a temporary period to become a little bit closer or to hear more from God in the process. In uh, Ezra 8.21, it tells us the first good thing that Ezra does. It says, There by the canal I proclaimed a fast so that we might humble ourselves before our God and ask him for a safe journey for us and for our children with all our possessions. So Ezra demonstrates something by example that's really positive. He gives up something important just for a temporary time so that he can seek God with greater intensity. You know what's really crazy, and I'm guilty of this? Sometimes I expect greater results from God, but I don't do anything differently, right? Would you guys expect to lose weight by not doing anything differently than you currently do it? Like, you, it wouldn't make any sense. Would you expect to make more money by not investing any differently than you do? In the same way, sometimes we say things like, I'm going through a dry spiritual period. I wish God was more real to me, but we don't do anything differently. Uh, and so I'm not telling anybody what they have to do. I'm just saying that Ezra uh, is a great leader. And the first way he's a great leader is he enacts this fast and he shows people that sometimes to connect with God on a deeper level, sometimes to hear from God in a more dynamic way, you have to seek God a little bit more fervently than you otherwise have. So I'll just ask you guys a quick question. Is there something in the next couple of days or weeks that you could temporarily give up in order to focus more on seeking God or hearing from God. And maybe a great idea has already popped into your head of something that you could temporarily give up that would allow you to seek God and hear from God a little bit more like Ezra models to us here. Maybe after getting home from work, instead of turning on a TV show, you could walk your dog and just spend a little bit of quiet time outside. Maybe tomorrow when you wake up, instead of turning on the news or that guy that screams about the, mar the, mar the financial markets, you could just drink your coffee quietly and let God speak to you. Maybe an even better idea has popped into your head. I love this next example of what Ezra does to model helpful ways for people to reconnect with God. He demonstrates that faith is a greater power than fear. Listen to what it says in Ezra 8.22. As, in Ezra's own words, he says, I was ashamed to ask the king of Persia for soldiers and horsemen to protect us on our journey from enemies on the road 
because we had told the king the gracious hand of our God is on everyone who looks to him. Isn't that interesting? Instead of asking the the king of Persia to give him an armed escort through these dangerous territories back into Jerusalem, he goes without an escort because he knows that he's a leader and he knows when you're a leader, people are watching you and he wants to demonstrate that faith is greater than fear. Sometimes when pastors say things like that, what we hear is, don't be afraid. What we hear is that fear is not real. And I think we all know that fear is a powerful thing. But what Ezra is demonstrating is that faith in God has a power that's even greater than the power of fear. Last night I was watching the movie Invictus uh, with my oldest kids. It's the story of uh, Nelson Mandela taking power in South Africa after decades of apartheid uh, back in the 1990s. And there's this one beautiful part of the movie where he's short on Secret Service agents. He needs more guards to protect him. And so he actually goes to the, the former secret police, the white Afrikaners that used to just grab black South Africans and throw them in jail sometimes without cause and so he knows that that's something that many black Africans at that South Africans at that time would have been afraid of and his his loyal uh, his loyal secret servicemen even object to that idea they say these are the people that used to throw us and our relatives in jail and now you want them protecting us and he so eloquently says South Africa is now united everywhere I go is now a rainbow coalition And that starts with my secret service. And in that example, he demonstrates that fear is real, but faith, and in that case, faith in a united, reunited South Africa was even more, had an even greater power and influence than to just continue to live in fear of how things had been in the past. And what a beautiful example that Ezra gives to us by refusing that armed escort to demonstrate that faith is even more powerful than fear. This next one is really important to me. I hope that you guys can make a mental note of this. The next thing that Ezra does that's a powerful example to us of how we can reconnect with God is that he demonstrates the power of an intermediary. Okay? He comes across people that are not obeying the way that God has called Israelites to obey. And he, he steps into their place. In Ezra 9.3, he grieves for them. In Ezra 9.5-6, he prays for them. And it says in Ezra 10.1 that as a result of his intermediary prayer, many people repent of their sins. Can you guys think of a time when you came across something that was just really outrageous? Maybe it was when you were in college. Maybe it was the last time you were driving through Bozeman. Maybe you saw people at Community Park doing something that was just very ungodly, just totally against the way that God calls people to live. And you spent the next week going around to every Christian you know saying, can you believe what I saw? Do you know how terrible it is down there at Community Park on Thursday nights? Do you know what I saw down on the... Right? And sometimes our reaction to something that's outrageous or ungodly is condemnation. We just, we just want to talk about how terrible those people are. But Ezra gives us a better example of how a spirit-filled person responds to something ungodly and outrageous. He becomes an intermediary. He grieves for the choices that they're making. He spends time praying that they would have a change of heart. 
and many are saved from their poor choices as a result. That's, the, that's probably the second great example that Ezra gives us of how to rebuild the faith community and how to respond to a reconstruction in a godly way. And uh, in Nehemiah 8, 1 to 9, a little bit later in this story, Ezra reminds us that the greatest way to reconnect with and hear from God is through the reading and the hearing of Scripture. They build this platform, and he just starts reading the books of like Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Leviticus, Deuteronomy. And so many in that generation had never even heard those stories before that it says they spend the whole day just listening and weeping and full of joy because that's the best way that we reconnect to God through the reading of Scripture. Ever since January, we have been promoting this Big Sky Christian Fellowship Bible reading plan, and we've just taken one book of the Bible each week. We've asked people to read through it and either join our discussion group or or just read it on their own with a spouse or a friend. And to be totally honest with you guys, there have been some pretty difficult weeks. Sometimes it's like Monday, and I still have to read the book of Romans before the discussion on Wednesday. And, and I'm just worn down from all the previous readings. But here's the good news, and this is the truth without any exaggeration. I feel like through this, the last six, five or six months of this Bible reading plan, I've doubled my knowledge and my understanding of Scripture. And I, like I've been to seminary, right? That's probably a way too high number. But like that's how much I feel that I've learned. That's how much I feel God has communicated his unified story through scripture and how he wants me to think and feel and act as a result. So the final really good thing that Ezra does is he shows us that the best way to reconnect with and hear from God is just be committed to the story that he's already told us throughout scripture. And as we do that, we'll be compelled with all the ways that that story that's already been told speaks to our our modern lives. Let's start to wrap up here in section three. This is probably the part of the story that you've either not understood or never even heard before because I spent like Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday not even knowing how to preach this, not even knowing how to deal with this part of the story. But I think the response is that Ezra does a couple things that are wrong. And I think that you're going you're gonna to relate that maybe you do these things wrong as well. And the first lesson that Ezra does wrong is in his appeal to communicate what God wants people to do and his desire to enforce what God wants people to do specifically remain distinct and not live in the ways that everybody else lives, he goes too far. Okay? Listen. Listen to what it says in Ezra 10, 9-11. And keep in mind, not everything that we see people do in the Bible are things that we're supposed to do. Okay? And... Uh, in Ezra 10, 9-11, in his fury that the Israelites are not learning that God wants them to be distinct and not follow the gods of their neighbors, it says this, Within the three days all the men of Judah and Benjamin had gathered in Jerusalem, and on the twentieth day of the ninth month all the people were sitting in the square before the house of God, and they were greatly distressed by the occasion and because of the rain. Then Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, You have been unfaithful. You have married foreign women, adding to Israel's guilt. Now honor the Lord, the God of your ancestors, and do his will. Separate yourselves from the people around you and from your foreign wives. In other words, Ezra is commanding everybody who is married a foreign wife 
even the ones who have children, to systematically divorce and send them out of Jerusalem. And sometimes we read stories like that and we're like, God, why would you ever want that to happen? And of course, the answer is when we look at the expanded universe of the Old Testament and when we look at some of the other writings of other prophets and other people that are connected to this story, God never wanted them to divorce their foreign wives and their children. They weren't supposed to marry them and they weren't supposed to worship their gods, but God never called for a mass divorce. One of the things that happens chronologically in the Bible before this story is the story of Ruth. And if you guys think back to the story of Ruth, what, of, what is it about? It's about a foreigner who marries into a Jewish family and because of her goodness, because of her faith in God, Israel is blessed. Exactly the same situation, marrying a foreigner and it brings blessing to Israel. Even more specifically, in the book of Malachi, in chapter 2, verses 13 to 26, the prophet is specifically addressing this thing that Ezra is telling the people to do. And Malachi, in no uncertain terms, says that it's wrong and God is not calling the Israelites to divorce their foreign wives and their children. And I think this is really significant because I want to ask you guys an honest question. Do you ever, mistake, do you ever make the mistake of Ezra? Do you ever want people to know and follow God so badly that you actually break God's word in your response? Do you ever come across a political ideology or a person or a lifestyle that the Bible speaks against and it makes you so mad that you're ungodly to those people in your response? I've done that before. I imagine that you have too. And when we do that, we make the mistake of Ezra. We so badly want people to follow God's word that we break God's word as we try to respond and enforce that. And so I hope you guys can just take a moment to reflect. Have you ever gone too far? And your desire for somebody to live for God, have you ever done something really ungodly in response? And maybe some specific examples are coming into your mind at the moment. Make no mistake, Ezra wants the Israelites to do the right thing, and he does something super unbiblical and super ungodly in his response. And I think as evangelicals, we've made that mistake a lot in political circles in the last few decades. We've wanted the right things, but we've been really ungodly as we've attempted to bring about those cultural changes. Let's be really weary not to make the mistake of Ezra because we're supposed to learn from his example. We're supposed to, to not defy the heart of God as we try to bring other people into an understanding of God. And let me wrap up with this. This will really just confuse you. In Nehemiah chapter 13, the combined story of Ezra and Nehemiah ends. And we just had two books of the Bible talking about these three reformers that are trying to teach the Israelites how they're supposed to live. They rebuild the temple. They rebuild the altar. They re-engage the, the, the ceremonies and the sacrifices. Uh, they rebuild the wall. And it's a, you would think that it's a success story. You'd think that every pastor from then on would have a manual uh, of, of how to rebuild a church after a crisis. But this is what happens in the final chapter of Nehemiah. The Levites, who are supposed to be caring for the temple, 
are neglecting their duties to be out tending to their fields. And earlier in the Old Testament, we, we learned that the Levites aren't even supposed to own property. So they're, they're doing it all wrong. It tells us in the final chapter of Nehemiah that there were many Jews who were so like their neighbors that they didn't even know Hebrew. They didn't even know their own language. And in one of my favorite moments in the whole Bible, Nehemiah is so angry that the people are working on the Sabbath that he runs around pulling out the hair of their beards. Okay? Have you ever been so exasperated with somebody that you just wanted to pull out the hair of their beards? That's how the story ends. The, ref the Reformation has gone so poorly. The reconnecting with God and the reestablishing their faith community has gone so poorly that the Levites are neglecting their duties in the temple. A lot of the nationals don't even know the Jewish language. And the great reformer is running around pulling out beard hair because nobody is following the Sabbath. So what are we supposed to do with that? What are we supposed to learn from this story? And let me wrap it up with this. Remember I'm talking about the expanded universe. There's other places in the Old Testament that are giving us extra context and extra guidance about these same events. If you guys would uh, wrap it up with me by turning to the book of Jeremiah. Don't be embarrassed if you have to go to the table of contents. It's uh, about halfway through the Bible. And uh, in Jeremiah 31... Verses 31 to 34, Jeremiah gives us the Old Testament's best answer as to what we can learn from the fact that the reconstruction of Jerusalem went poorly. It was a massive failure. And Jeremiah is going to tell us why. And he says this, Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I'm going to make a new covenant with the people of Israel and the people of Judah. I will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt, because they broke that covenant, even though I was like a faithful spouse to them. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel. I'll put my law in their mind, and I'll write it on their hearts. I'll be their God, and they'll be my people. And no longer will they teach their neighbor or say to themselves, Know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least to the greatest. In other words, Jeremiah the prophet is saying, there's no way the old covenant can work. There's no way that a person can come in and lead so well that the hearts of everybody else will be for God. Because a heart for God is not something that a leader can legislate. It's not something that one person through great leadership can impose on others. Because the old covenant is that if all the Israelites just obey the law well enough, Israel will be great and prosperous again. And Ezra and Nehemiah tried that so hard. And they did so many things right, and it still failed. And what's so beautiful about the unity of the Bible is that later on, in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 10 to 18, Paul explains that Jesus is the new covenant. And in 1 Corinthians 11.25, Jesus himself acknowledges that he's the new covenant. So when Jeremiah is saying we're not going to need to obey all these old laws, we're not going to need to legislate the way that other people feel and act about things, he's saying there's going to be a better way because Jesus is going to be imprinted in our minds and our hearts. In other words, we're not going to need a pastor or a president to come in and make America moral. Because it can't work that way. Amen. The only way it can work is when each of us as individuals have 
Jesus Christ imprinted in our minds and our hearts. And when I come across someone at Community Park that's ungodly, all of a sudden my mind says, how would Jesus act with that person? And all of a sudden my heart says, go and do likewise. Right? That's the new covenant that Jeremiah was talking about. That's the new covenant that Paul and Jesus said is accomplished through the work of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ lived a sinless life. He died in our place. He took the judgment of a righteous God and then he burst forth from the grave with resurrection power. And he did that so that we could have that resurrection power living inside of us. That's our hope for reconnecting with God. That's our hope for rebuilding our faith community. I'm not going to come up with anything that's going to rebuild this church. No leader is going to come up with anything that's going to bring great moral reconstruction to our country. But when each one of us as individuals lets the gospel of Jesus Christ imprint on our minds and our hearts, that's when massive reformation and revival are going to take place. I'd like to invite the worship team to uh, wrap up our service. And uh, as they do, I hope that you guys just think about the life of Ezra. He was one of the Bible's better leaders, but he got a lot wrong. He was a good leader by modeling the importance of seeking God and living with faith and praying for those that are unyielding to God and devoting himself to Scripture. But he makes a great mistake by breaking God's word in an attempt to enforce others living out God's word.